so, and before, before I um, take the microphone to the speaker and also discuss, and I'd like to just provide some very brief uh, context to today's webinar. As you know, uh, South Korea's far-right President Yoon, who was elected just uh, uh, last year by a narrowest margin of 0.7%, is in Washington, D.C. this week and for a state visit at the invitation of President Biden. Yoon's visit comes at a time when South Korea is experiencing unprecedented crisis on the political, economic, and national security front as a consequence of the Biden administration's unrelenting pressure on South Korea to join the U.S. anti-China bloc. And Washington's policies run directly counter to the sentiment of the majority of South Koreans who strongly support balanced foreign relations with Russia and China, meaningful reconciliation with Japan, and most importantly, peace with North Korea. As you know, according to the recent polls, 80%, 80% of Koreans oppose the degree to which President Yoon has capitulated to Washington's imposition of its anti-China policy on South Korea. And Washington's endorsement of Yoon and support for his new national security directly contravenes the majority of South Korean public opinion. According to recent polls, the Yoon administration has 19% approval rating. So to, to sum up, while the purpose of Yoon's state visit is to prove his relevance to many of us, to U.S. imperial ambitions in Asia, Washington's increasingly heavy-handed management of its one-sided relationship with South Korea is causing to lose the battle for the hearts and minds among the South Korean public. Just to help make sense of these grave issues from a critical geopolitical perspective and also activist perspective, Without further ado, I would like to pass the microphone to Noam, Professor Chomsky. Well, South Korean opinion happens to be lining up with the great majority of the world. Uh, most of the world is refusing to support the U.S. effort to launch a major new Cold War, both in Europe and in Asia, uh, even in Europe, the, you look at public opinion polls, a large majority oppose the policy of rejecting the effort for a negotiated diplomatic settlement, which comes from Washington and is followed by the most of the European leadership, not all. Uh, most of the world just says, no, it's not, it's not our fight. We do not want to join in the conflict with either Russia or certainly not with China. And in fact, uh, China has been moving towards uh, infuriating the United States by moving towards uh, initiating peaceful settlements of major conflicts. Saudi Arabia, Iran case is a dramatic one, throws a wrench into long-standing U.S. policy to try to organize a, an alliance of reactionary states for its conflict with Iran. Saudi Arabia, a linchpin. 
Saudi Arabia's even joined the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, China-based uh, development and investment program. Uh, the United States has tried and so far succeeded in getting the European leadership, leadership, I say, to join in uh, its uh, what, in fact, should be regarded as a preparation for war with China. The last NATO summit, uh, the United States rammed through a condition that NATO be expanded to the Indo-Pacific region. So the North Atlantic now includes South Korea, in case you didn't notice, uh, the uh, uh, all of the Pacific and indo in Indian Ocean region must be part of the NATO system run by the United States, of course, an aggressive alliance. Uh, most of the world is refusing. The United States is uh, developing the uh, attack on, impending attack on China. It's not impending. It's already underway at two levels. One is military. One is economic. Uh, the military dimension is... Uh, things like expanding NATO, but concretely uh, in official terminology, I'll just quote the official terminology, encircling China with a ring of sentinel states, including South Korea, leading all the way to Japan, Australia, uh, that are armed with, uh, heavily armed with U.S. advanced precision weapons aimed at China, United States has now expanded this by, for the first time, sending permanent uh, B-52, that's nuclear-capable B-52 installations in Guam in northern Australia, now moving toward the Philippines, uh, try to create a, that the military dimension is to tr uh, the sending of nuclear submarines to Australia, which is intended as part of the method for bottling up uh, China so that it can't get access to the Pacific because uh, the subs, in fact, even the existing ones are now carrying out sabotage and the Chinese international economic zone monitoring Chinese shipping and so on. All of that is part of the military dimension. On the economic dimension, it's perfectly open and frank. The Secretary of Commerce, Rina, Gina Ramondi, just said that all Western countries must cooperate in preventing Chinese innovation and development. Chinese must some, China must somehow be strangled. All, any component, if you look at the uh, supply chains for advanced technology like chips, they're very widespread. There's almost nothing that doesn't contain some kind of a U.S. component, a patent, a piece, or whatever. And the Biden administration rules expanding Trump even further are that no ally, including South Korea, can send anything to China that includes a U.S. component, which means about everything. It's a threat against, it's a severe threat against South Korea, the Netherlands, Japan, all of which have advanced, highly advanced industries. You know about South Korea, I don't have to tell you, but Netherlands has the uh, 
leading the lithographic industry, which makes minuscule components that are critical to development of uh, computer chips. Netherlands is being ordered by the United States to uh, leave the China market, which is, of course, an enormously lucrative market. It's not clear yet whether they'll submit to this. It's part of the deindustrialization of Europe that's being carried out under U.S. auspices by trying to cut Europe off from its natural markets in the East. Uh, Russia's enormous mineral reserves, oil reserves, and the enormous China market right behind it. Uh, the European allies are partially submitting to this, partially refusing at the uh, G7 meetings, all opposed, all opposed the U.S. efforts to uh, expand the sanctions against Iran, against Russia to the point where all exports are banned. Only the United States supported that, the entire G7 approach. Uh, so there is a struggle going on in the West, but in the rest of the world, it's, there's no struggle. Uh, nobody wants this. Every country is moving towards independence of the U.S.-dominated global system. Brazil, um, India, Indonesia, South Africa, they're all moving towards independent financial, commercial relations with China or even with each other that don't involve a third party, meaning U.S. Uh, currency and control. This is a development worldwide. It's a confl major conflict for development of world, for the development of world order. South Korea is right in the middle of it. The crisis is the question of whether to move towards a, some kind of political commercial settlement with the North is primary consideration. It, has to be accomplished or else both Koreas suffer badly in the world as well. It's, uh, I think, can be. There have been moves that came close to it, which were undermined. We could go into that, but uh, now it's an imperative. And the uh, there must be a u united front to evade the uh, enormous U.S. effort to try to uh, create the basis for a major conflict with China, which will be devastating. I mean, they're now talking, even U.S. generals, who ought to know better, are talking about the possibility of a war with China. That's total insanity. War with China, everybody's finished. It's done. Human race is finished. A couple of people survive. You might remember Albert Einstein's answer to the question, what weapons will be used in the Third World War? He said, I don't know what weapons will be used in the Third World War, but the Fourth World War, it'll be stone axes. Yeah, that's basically correct. It's loose talk of the same. I mean, you find articles in the major U.S. journal, Foreign Affairs, major journal, saying, oh, we can have a small nuclear war with Russia, you know, just... Tactical nuclear weapons won't hit the United States. Who cares? It's, a, it's beyond insanity. As soon as you begin to move up the 
escalation ladder. There's no point where it stops. If anybody's in trouble, they'll just escalate. It's elementary. Every war game shows it. Everybody who can think for a minute can figure it out. There is no conceivable possibility of a major war among nuclear powers. It goes beyond that, much beyond. The, we're all, all of us, everyone on the planet is facing major crises. We're destroying the environment. We have a couple of decades, literally, in which we can deal with the uh, heating, boiling of the environment. You don't do it. We go down the road to essentially destruction of organized human society. That's quite clear. Either the major powers will accommodate in some way to deal with this crisis, which has no borders, of course, nor do others. Either they'll find a way to work together to deal with it, or we'll all go to disaster together. It's as simple as that. Uh, the direction in which leadership is going is, there's no word for it. It's beyond true. It's beyond any words that I know. It's leading to the potential, very likely, destruction of, order, of organized human life on Earth. And eyes open, they're doing it. Got to stop this shift dramatically from confrontation to accommodation at every level, whether it's North and South Korea, U.S. and China, Europe and Russia, it's got to go in that direction or we're all going to go off the precipice together. Thank you, Noam, for that um, rather grim uh, analysis. But at the same time, I also I also see a great potential and to the extent that you mentioned that, uh, you know, all the... Most of the world oppose U.S. efforts to dominate. And uh, uh, in other words, we must work together. And I'm wondering if we, with that note, maybe uh, we can address, maybe we can, you know, address some of those questions from the discussant and maybe start with uh, um, KJ. Uh, KJ, would you uh, maybe, um, you know, present a little bit of context and then uh, pose a uh, a uh, couple of questions for Noam. KJ, you are uh, you are muted. Yeah. KJ, could you unmute? Yeah. KJ, can you hear? I can hear. Yeah. So, uh, would would you uh, maybe uh, we can pose a question for Noam um, and and also providing some context. Um, I think you had a question about the professor, to Professor Noam Chomsky about the, uh, you know, the structural and geopolitical constraints that pose that uh, very, um, you know, to to have a difficulty of, uh, uh, you know, creating peace on the Korean Peninsula, especially the U.S. role. Yes. Well, I mean, the key point that I wanted to make is South Korea has exercised full operational control of its military for mm -hmm. only 13 months since its liberation in 1945. That is to say, 78 years ago, it's only controlled its own military 
for about a little over a year. It's still subject to U.S. wartime operational control. That means the U.S. has de facto and de jure control over 600,000 plus uh, Korean troops, highly trained, highly armed, uh, plus 3.1 reservists and all of South Korea's bases, weapons and materiel at the drop of a hat. This constitutes an incredibly powerful force projection platform and major force multiplier for the U.S. And as Professor Chomsky has pointed out, uh, and as we already know, South Korea has always been a subcontractor to U.S. geopolitical design. Uh, it was the first to volunteer troops to Vietnam. It deployed 320,000 troops to Vietnam. Uh, South Korea's Indo-Pacific strategy is essentially the U.S. Indo-Pacific strategy handed back to the United States on a silver platter. And now the U.S. is preparing for war against China, uh, and it's using tension against North Korea as a stalking horse or a pretext for escalation against China and military enmeshment between Japan and Korea and the U.S. And it is deliberately provoking and stoking tension with nonstop military exercises and provocations. So I, my question is, can we have any good outcomes, diplomacy, peace, reunification, when first the U.S. is still violating the original conditions of the military armistice between North Korea and the United States, and when South Korea does not have sovereign control over its own military? That is to say, its military is simply an appendage of U.S. force projection and U.S. geopolitical design. And the U.S. clearly has an interest in containing, militarizing, and escalating towards kinetic war. No, With Professor regard to Korea, the major step has to be to move towards a peace treaty, as North Korea has been proposing for requesting for a long time. U.S. has been rejecting it. As long as there's no peace treaty between the South and the North, South Korea is occupied. That's a fact. South Korea is an occupied country, as you describe, and in the absence of a peace treaty, will remain so. It's in the interest of all the people of Korea, all, to move towards a peace agreement. And there's every reason to believe that that's possible. It came quite close in the past, uh, 2006, for example. There was actually an agreement under major pressure from Asian countries, the U.S., the Bush administration, second Bush, was pressured to enter into negotiations with North Korea. They reached an agreement, 2006, in which North Korea agreed to terminate all missile nuclear programs in exchange for a peace agreement, no hostile acts, uh, offer of a light reactor for medical purposes. It was all agreed. Bush administration immediately undermined it, rejected, dismantled the consortium that was going to provide the load, the nuclear reactor, immediately carried out hostile acts, accusing Korea, all sorts of North Korea of all kinds of things. So, of course, North Korea went back to 
uh, building up its uh, missile and uh, uh, nuclear capacities. In fact, as the leading, some of the leading U.S. historians, U.S. historians in Korea, like Leon Siegel, have been pointing out, North Korea has been following a what he calls a tit-for-tat policy. You carry out aggressive acts, we'll respond to aggressive acts. Uh, not saying it's a nice regime. It isn't <laughs> by any means, but that's a different question. There are have been possibilities for moving towards reconciliation, many. They can. That's the local issue. It's much broader. I mean, right now, just today, in fact, the Republican House of Representatives uh, was presented with legislation to punish the Solomon Islands for daring to move towards some kind of reconciliation. Nothing is left open. I don't know if Washington will do it, but it's no. The, uh, and most of the world is finding ways out of this, like uh, the BRICS countries, which now have a larger economy than uh, Europe and the United States, um, almost twice as much, in fact, major region, uh, are moving towards independent means of commercial and trade interactions, not working through Washington. Notice that, as you know, of course, the United States is basically the only country in the world that can impose sanctions. And everyone has to obey the sanctions, third-party sanctions, whether they like it or not, because the U.S. controls the international financial system. Well, there are now efforts to break out of that domination. BRICS has a development bank which is probably going to be more uh, active than the World Bank. Uh, the U.S. incidentally is barely funding the World Bank, doesn't want international institutions. It's uh, uh, All of these things are taking place all over the world, including Europe. And um, uh, South Korea has an opportunity to join in this growing tendency to move towards a multipolar world. I should make a comment how about here about the way discourse is constructed in the United States. Uh, there's a confrontation between two versions of world order. One is the UN-based world order, which is proposed by China, by the global south, by most of the world. The U.S. is opposed in favor of what's called a rules-based international order. And doctrinal controls are so rigid in the United States, free society, but very rigid doctrinal controls by submission, not force. Everyone has to talk about a rules-based order. What's a rules-based order? It's an order in which the United States sets the rules. And if it doesn't like the rules, it throws them out. So when the World Trade Organization tries to uh, reach, to join other judicial organizations in condemning the U.S. sanctions that are strangling Cuba, 
the Clinton administration just says, sorry, it's not your business. We're, we have a policy to overthrow the government. Said that openly. And you, the World Trade Organization, have no right to interfere with this by uh, charging that our sanctions regime violates the rules. We set the rules. You don't like it. Too bad. Same just happened with the World Trade Organization condemning U.S. US taking, stealing, basically, the uh, reserves from Iran. World Trade Organization tried to block it, said it's illegal. The United States told them, get lost. You know, we do what they like. Uh, that's the rules-based order. If you're an American academic or political commentator, you got to talk about the rules-based order. The rest of the world's talking about a UN-based order. Well, that's a multipolar versus a unipolar world. South Korea has its choices. It's not going to be easy. As you say, for all of South Korea's existence, it's been subordinated to the United States. Actually, if you take a look back at the amazing uh, economic development of South Korea, which is quite astonishing, as you know, uh, had a big shot in the arm from South Korean participation in the Vietnam War. A huge flow of uh, income came to South Korea from joining in devastating, destroying little South Vietnam. Lots of atrocities, lots of workers, but plenty of money coming. So there's a kind of a gain in a way, but now your South Korea is paying the price. Do you want to stay subordinated to the United States or join most of the rest of the world in moving towards a global order with independent sources and centers of control, not just the United States? Does South Korea want to be part of the North Atlantic? Well, it's a decision. According to the United States, South Korea is part of the North Atlantic. That was the last... Uh, NATO summit. That's an issue that will have to be resolved in South Korea. It's not going to be easy. won't be easy for Samsung to say, we're not going to abandon the Chinese market the way you're trying to get us, make us do. be a big blow to Samsung and uh, South Korean industry. Same question arising in the Netherlands and Japan. Not at all clear how they're going to deal with it. That's quite a in fact, even U.S. corporations are subject, being subjected by the government to efforts to undermine them by blocking their China trade. So far, they're finding ways to evade it. But this is a major issue all over the world. It's quite interesting to watch how it's playing out. Professor Chomsky, I um, um, thank you so much for that, um, for, you know, it, not only addressing the, the uh, 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 practical issue that Korea faces, but also this uh, broader um, um, world that is rule-based versus, uh, uh, you know, UN-based multipolarity system. I think before that, I think you mentioned about, uh, about with, in regard to cages, responding to cages question about is there any good outcome can come out in the Korean Peninsula, given those, uh, you know, South Korea being an occupied country, you mentioned about maybe the first step is a peace treaty. 
So with that note, I think maybe um, Christina, uh, who is the uh, founder and executive director of Women Cross DNG, and uh, she has been leading this incredible women-led movement precisely to push for uh, peace treaty, uh, peace settlement, um, starting from this movement, start from the United States, and it's becoming global and also uh, having such an impact. And and Christina can tell us about the specific uh, 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 organization and movement that we are doing right now. So, um, Christine. Thank you, Simone. And thank you so much, Professor Chomsky, for all your, both the uh, not so good news, but also some really good news, I think, about um, the opposition, especially from the global south to uh, the U.S.-led uh, domination of, of the world. Um, I wanted to just uh, start by saying today is a very significant day with uh, the Biden and Yoon summit in Washington, D.C., where, as many of you may know, President Yoon has been toying with the idea of developing South Korea's own nuclear weapons program and uh, allegedly has broad support in South Korea because of North Korea's increasing missile tests and nuclear capability. Um, and as a way to assuage South Korea, uh, they announced, but uh, President Biden announced that they would be sending the U.S. nuclear armed submarines to be docked in South Korea, which I think is quite terrifying and is very provocative uh, against North Korea, against China. And we know that at this time, with all the intelligence leaks, that uh, the U.S. has been strong arming South Korea in violation of its own national policy to send weapons to Ukraine. We know that uh, they were sent to Poland, they were sent to the U.S., but the end user being Ukraine, essentially enlisting South Korea in its proxy war against Russia. Um and as we know recently, in its forced reconciliation between Japan and South Korea, uh, the U.S. has been pushing President Yoon to uh, do the things that most Koreans um, detest, which is to basically give a free pass to Japan for its historic brutality, whether it's the slave laborers or the comfort women. And so he just recently agreed to compensate the Korean workers using Korean money and through Korean corporations instead of what the South Korean Supreme Court ruled, which is that Japan was and Japanese companies were responsible. So this is the current situation where uh, the U.S. is further entrenching South Korea in a new Cold War against Russia, China, and North Korea. And now we have a new precedent of uh, sending a nuclear armed submarine into the Korean Peninsula. Well, this happens to also be the 70th anniversary of the armistice, which was the, uh, the temporary halting of fighting with the commitment that they would return in 90 days to negotiate a peace settlement. And that has not happened. And so that's why we're in this situation. Um, and the irony, the, the sick irony is we're in a new Cold War. When in fact, the Korean War was the beginning of the Cold War, which was the war that inaugurated the military industrial complex, which was the war that set off the U.S. to become the world's police. So 
I am in agreement with, with you, no, that to end this war, that to end this potential World War III crisis with the U.S. going to war against China and listing both North and South Korea, that we need to bring closure to this war. And so, in fact, um, we are, uh, there has, I mean, as somebody who has spent most of my adult life working on this issue, I am actually seeing some, um, we're at a tipping point. Um, first of all, we have a bill in Congress. It's the Peace on the Korean Peninsula Act. It's now HR 1369. It's, it's the second version, but we almost got 50 members of Congress to sign that. And you know what? That doesn't sound like much, but a decade ago on the 60th anniversary of a congressional briefing of the Korean War, we had only two members of Congress that were even willing to be vocal about supporting peace with North Korea. And that was Barbara Lee and Dennis Kucinich. And now we have almost 50 members of Congress that actually support peace with North Korea with a peace agreement. So that is a huge win, I think, for us as a peace movement. Um, we are also seeing some um, really important uh, changes, I think, in the narrative. The former Special Rapporteur on North, North Korea Human Rights, Thomas Quintana, has been calling for peace as an important step to improving human rights. We are now seeing members of the nuclear uh, disarmament community recognize that you cannot get to denuclearization without assuring North Korea's security guarantee. And that is in the form of a peace agreement. And we hear plenty of humanitarian aid workers who have been on the ground in North Korea that the conditions in North Korea cannot change unless there is peace. So, uh, and most recently, I'm just going to drop this link. The former three-star general, Dan Leaf, actually wrote a penned an op-ed in the New York Times, actually calling for a peace agreement with North Korea to take nuclear war off the table. So we are actually organizing a massive mobilization this July 27th and 28th in Washington, D.C. Hundreds are gathering. We have a huge coalition of organizations that are organizing this. I'm going to drop the link of the, the website that we just launched where you can see the program. We're having a, a White House rally. We're having a congressional briefing with our Korea Peace Champions. We're having a healing circle and we're having a conference at George Washington University with Bruce Cummings keynoting and General Leaf will be with us, as will Sig Hecker, the former nuclear scientist who knows that in order to achieve denuclearization, we have to get to peace. So this is a significant year. This is now or never. And as we know, the Korean War was the first war where U.S. and Chinese troops fought each other. We know Mao Zedong's son died in that war. And so not only would peace on the Korean Peninsula be something that is uh, morally an obligation for the United States as the country that divided the peninsula, it is also a huge opportunity to transform um, the increasing terrifying tensions of U.S. and China. So I hope you guys will all join us and thank you so much um, for all the experts in on this panel together. Uh, we are together changing the narrative and offering a clear path um, away from war. Thank you.
Thank you so much, Christine, Anne. And uh, again, I think that we are today's the uh, theme. I think I'm just thinking of is working together um, and uh, to make a really um, um, uh, make a difference. Now, Anon, do you, um, I think because we actually, I turned to Christine specifically about the peace treaty. Uh, Noam, do you have any uh, comment on uh, uh, Chris Nunn's, um, uh talk, uh, any additional comment that you would like to make on the... All I can say is to endorse every word of it. The uh, As long as there's no peace treaty, South Korea is an occupied country. It's subject to U.S. domination and control. It's on the front line in case there's any military action. South Korea will suffer from it. Koreans know very well what total destruction is. You don't have to look very many miles to see. In the many years ago, what total destruction is. It's much worse now. I mean, I've seen it myself and. Vietnam, where was there during the areas are just moonscapes, uh, literally can't see any sign of life or habitation. That's a lesser war. If there's anything more now, it's just basically finished. So you have to start, just like you said, move towards a peace treaty, end the occupation, get rid of the nuclear weapons, get rid of the nuclear subs, which are Terrible provocation. They offer no protection for anything, but they are a major provocation. Get rid of all that, move towards a UN-based international order without military alliances. Uh, uh, basically, uh, what Mikhail Gorbachev called a common European home, extending from Lisbon to Vladivostok, bringing in the Eastern fringe, South Korea, Korea, Japan, and so on. No military alliances, common efforts towards developing a livable society for all of us. It's within reach. And the things you're describing are major steps towards it. They all deserve very strong support. Thank you so much for such encouraging words. And thank you, Christina. We'll be with you. <laughs> um, I think with that note, something that Noam says strikes me is that the, the idea of common, you mentioned common European home. Now I'm just, you know, make me imagine common Northeast Asian home. Um, in other words, the, you know, peace in Korea is not possible. You have to look at within geopolitical context. So I thought, uh, I want to maybe um, turn to uh, Satoko, uh, and I'm uh, the only um, uh, Japanese scholar and activist here. And uh, she has actually prepared a very uh, inspiring um, uh, uh, discussing text and also a very um, excellent question. So, Satoko, would you join us? Would you uh, uh, comment on the... Uh, Thank you. Yeah. Thanks. Thank you for your kind um, introduction and so honored to be uh, with you, uh, all of you, and Professor Noam Chomsky. And I've already been so overwhelmed and inspired by everything you've been saying, especially the world, you know, um, divided between the UN-based order and the rule-based order. I feel like I just want to go back to Japan and tell everyone, 
because the people in Japan, they don't know the difference between the two. They're so intertwined with the United States that they think uh, the United States rule-based order is the UN-based order. And so I, I'm just, I just can't wait to go back there and tell everyone. Um, anyway, um, uh, Professor Noam Chomsky, uh, so I'm, I'm speaking mostly uh, as a sole Japanese national in a pan East Asia. When the Inter-Korean Summit was held in October 2007 by then Chairman Kim Jong-il and President Noam, uh, Noam, you commented that the progress on the Korean Peninsula is a turning point in 500 years of Western rule. You elaborated that the peace in the Korean Peninsula was not just about Korea, but has a global historical significance in the colonized countries uh, uh, are finally taking steps towards integration and independence in a true sense from the 500 years Western imperialist domination of the world as a whole. This struck me as so meaningful as I think about the history of Japan's colonization of Korea, which goes back exactly five centuries ago. Warlord Toyotomi Hideyoshi, who had conquered the whole of Japan, attempted to expand his territory to the big continent, and his enemy attacked Korea. It was one of the biggest wars of the world in the 16th century. Prior to this war, Japan threatened the Ryukyu Kingdom, now known as Okinawa, to provide supplies for Japan's war in Korea. The Ryukyu Kingdom did not easily obey Japan, and this gave Japan a motive to invade the Ryukyus with military force later. Three centuries later, modernized Japan got its wishes, forcibly annexing the Ryukyus into Okinawa Prefecture, colonizing Taiwan as a spoil of the war against the Qin Dynasty, and forcibly occupying Korea after winning a war against Russia with the British and American help. The Japan's imperial uh, greed knew no limits, and their occupation of Manchuria met hostility by the Western imperialists, and this led to the Japanese war against the Allied nations. As we all know, the Japanese empire was defeated in August 1945, and the country was turned into a U.S. Cold War vehicle, and eight decades later, it still is. And sons and grandsons of fascist war criminals pardoned by the U.S. still run this country. Japan makes sure that its children and general public stay uninformed about its imperial past by censoring the country's textbooks. Japan continues to deny its responsibility for the division of Korea and the Korean War, which brought huge profits to the Japanese economy. Today, Japan maintains its hostility towards the DPRK and has no intention to atone for the colonial past and resume diplomatic relations. Japan does not miss any chance to get in the way of any peace process in the Korean Peninsula by weaponizing the abduction issue. The Japanese government and the pro-Japan, pro-U.S. Korean government collaborate in bringing humiliating so-called solutions to victims of colonial time forced labor and sex slavery with the pressure from the U.S. Now in Japan, anti-China, anti-DPRK, and anti-Russia rhetoric by the government and the corporate media are more rampant than ever. The effective revision of the war renunciation clause of the constitution and remilitarization are intensifying, bringing Japanese defense and spending toward the NATO standard of 2% of the GDP. Japan imposes the vast majority of harmful U.S. military bases on Okinawa as a persistent colonialism so that mainland Japan can keep the pretense of peace. 
it looks like a deja vu of what was going on five centuries ago when Japan abused Korea and Ryukyu's for its colonial interests, and now the U.S. takes full advantage of it. The U.S.-Japan League has fully militarized the Ryukyu chain of violence between Taiwan and Kyushu and engaged in joint military drills posing threat to China and DPRK and, of course, uh, residents of all the area Ryukyu Islands and Taiwan and, and Korea. So, uh, Noam Chomsky, uh, we want to realize what you envisioned 16 years ago by bringing peace to the Korean Peninsula to break away from the vicious circle of imperial entanglement of the world that goes on for five centuries. And what advice do you have for younger generations at this point in history to realize this vision? And especially if you could have, you know, I mostly talked uh, from the Japanese perspective, like if you have any um, advice for the, the people in Japan or the, or the young generations, um, I would appreciate it very much. Thank you, Noam. Well, the advice is always easy. Uh, it's implementing that that's hard. The advice is for Korea to move expeditiously towards ending the occupation, military subordination to the United States, moving towards a peace treaty, joining the rest of the world, most of the rest of the world, and breaking the control of a unipolar, unipolar dominant authority. Japan, there's a major struggle that has to go on internally, educational, cultural struggle to break Japan away from it, the Japanese government away from its role in just implementing U.S. policy. As you said, Japan gained enormously from the Korean War. That was the stimulus that led to Japanese industrialization. Later gained enormously from the Vietnam War as a, uh, providing a, a yeah. material support, uh, uh, even having American soldiers come for rest and recreation there, all enormous input to Japan. It's gained enormously from U.S. wars in uh, Asia. As I don't have to tell you, uh, Theodore Roosevelt handed Korea over to Japan uh, as part of what he got the Nobel Prize for, for peace. Uh, the Japanese were considered, the South Africans had a phrase, they called them honorary whites. They're not really Asians. They just kind of look like that. But they're Jap the Japanese are honorary whites. The U.S. treated them that way, too. There's a plenty of racial prejudice behind all of this. And the Japanese were partially excluded from it, except during the Second World War itself. But uh, these are major issues. The uh, For South Korea, it means... Problems are internal there for Japan. It's a major problem to educate the Japanese people to maintain Article 9, you know, the formal peace position, which is being seriously eroded, may even be overthrown formally by the right-wing government. That's a struggle that's going to go off on in Japan. Unfortunately, there's not very much of it. Some, not much. So 
we can only hope through international solidarity to support the movements in our own country and other countries which have the common aim of saving uh, human life on earth to create a livable world instead of a world in which we'll all be destroyed by conflict. That's that's the task of this generation which can't be avoided. Thank you so much, uh, Noam, and also thank you, Satoko, for such um, uh, excellent discussion. And I know uh, Noam has a very um, a special heart for a uh, struggle of uh, people in Okinawa. I think he has huge admiration. Um, um, I remember from past conversation with him. I think with that note, maybe uh, we can go to um, Sunhee from um, Angjan Peace, Peace Network International Team. And uh, Sunhee has been, as you know, Jeju uh, Island is the southernmost, uh, you know, most southern part in South Korea, which has been now um, for the more than 10 years or so. All of us, I think of all, almost all of us are, are, have been involved in, in the peace movement started from there against Jeju Navy base. And Sunny has been starting from the very beginning. She joined the peace movement and, uh, and uh, she still continues. And one reason why I actually personally also uh, I wanted to invite Sunny was that I read an interview with uh, Chris, Christine Hong and uh, Sunny. And, you know, and your struggle is hard. And uh, uh, despite such an uh, uh, inspirational peace movement, uh, some people are, you know, have left and there is sort of a sense of somewhat of, you know, um, defeat. Um, but I felt that, uh, you know, if this is not the time to stop. It's not to renew our struggle and support and solidarity. So with that uh, uh, note, I would like to uh, hear from Sung Hee what's, what's really happening in Jeju Island, um, Gangjung Lake. Um, uh, Navy base. Yes. Um, thank you so much, Simon and organizers. You know, I really uh, want to express my gratitude to Prof. Chom- uh, Prof. Uh, Chomsky to consistently supporting the people in Jeju fighting against the Jeju Navy base by this chance. Um, Jeju, located close to China, has been considered as the strategic spot for power for nations throughout history. It can be either an outpost for war or a hub for world peace. The naval base on Jeju was unfortunately constructed in 2016, despite the people's opposition, but the struggle continues. The Jeju Navy base is a South Korean base. But according to the terms of the U.S.-ROK Mutual Defense Treaty in 1953, the United States can use the South Korean military base and facilities anytime it wants. David Suchita of the U.S. Navy wrote in 2013 that the Jeju Naval Base could support Japan in a conflict with China over the Senkaku Islands, as well as during a conflict in the Taiwan Strait with Jeju Navy Base U.S. Uh, with Jeju-based U.S. ships, submarines, and aircraft. There have already been visits by U.S. warships, including a U.S. nuclear aircraft carrier and a U.S. nuclear submarine. On December 27th of last year, the South Korean media reported on a document responding to the North Korean nuclear crisis by a special committee of the ruling right-wing party. The document mentioned the necessity 
to examine the issue of making Jeju a strategic island in case of worsening situations. The document also mentioned examination of construction of a runway enabled the poor use by U.S. strategic bombers and of establishment of temporary storage for nuclear weapons, as well as a promotion of those in the building of a new building of a new airport in Jeju. The new expressly militarized airport is currently in the proposal stage. The document also mentions the possibility of nuclear weapons being deployed in Japan, thus shared by the ROK, US, and Japan. On December 20th, bombers and fighters from eight bases of the ROK, US, and Japan conducted a joint war drill in the Cadiz area southwest of Jeju. This January, the Center for Strategic and International Studies a conservative U.S. think tank advised the U.S. government to consider simulation training which prepares for the redeployment of tactical nuclear weapons on the Korean Peninsula, while in February, a report from the Heritage Foundation, another conservative U.S. think tank, suggested that there should be a NATO-type nuclear planning group with South Korea. These are dangerous steps toward the nuclearization of the Asia and Pacific, ignoring the treaty banning nuclear weapons. Jeju has many scars of imperialism, war, as well as the April 3rd massacre, destined to fight unjust imperial domination and to contribute to world peace. We are here with all of you. Solidarity with you all, let's save the earth together. My question to Norm, what do you want to tell the people of Jeju who are currently fighting against the Jeju Navy base, second airport, uh, which will be highly likely to be an airport base project and other just injustice? Why and how their struggles are important? Thank you. Noam, you are unmuted. Internet just collapsed for a few minutes. Sorry about that. We understand. No worries. Well, the just in time for the last question, the struggle of the people of Jeju Island has been a real inspiration. Uh, It's an amazing struggle against enormous odds for uh, not only their own rights, preservation of this beautiful island that's being despoiled for military purposes and gauging them in uh, military threats that'll threaten their existence, but also inspiration for struggles all over the world for freedom and solidarity and peace. What advice? Best advice is really for the countries, the others. Jeju Island, they're struggling courageously. They don't need any advice. The rest of us who need advice find to find ways to create solidarity organizations and activism, which will, first of all, learn about the struggle. Not many people know about it, uh, but and then move on to compel our own countries. For me, that primarily the United States, but others to join in support for the 
just, honorable, courageous struggle of the people of Jeju Island for their own rights and for a major move towards global peace. Problem, the advice should, is for the outside. People of Jeju Island are giving us the advice by their own courageous struggle. We should take the advice and carry it forward in our own, wherever we are. That's an amazing achievement. Thank you, Norman. Indeed, um, Jeju Peace Movement on those peace activists has been truly uh, uh, inspirational. And uh, I'm just reading uh, this uh, remark, uh, statement you made uh, a few years ago by Jeju. He said it was made clear that the purchase of the U.S. construction of a naval base on Jeju Island was also to exert military pressure on China and to place operational units on the front in preparation for a military conflict with China, which is your words. The Jeju Naval Base is the front of the United States. So there was, uh, uh, Norm, your, uh, your, your words, uh, few, uh, you know, over 10, almost 10 years ago when it started. And I truly appreciate it. Yes, we will, we'll continue to give solidarity to those, uh, peace activists in Jeju. Um, I think we, uh, we started with the Norm you mentioned about Indo-Pacific, uh, strategy. Uh, you know, we're kind of, we're circling back to that original, this, uh, big picture. Um, I wonder if we can have uh, Gregory Illich to even expand further on the notion, and especially taking into consideration this uh, development of NATO's expansion in in Northeast Asia. And so um, I think that it's, this issue has not been really covered, and uh, so I thought this may be uh, a great opportunity also to be more informed about it. Greg? Yeah, uh, thank you, Professor Chomsky and Simone and uh, fellow discussants for your uh, analysis and insight. Uh, the Biden administration attaches great importance to strengthening military alliances with other nations, describing allies as force multipliers. Asian countries are expected to fortify the U.S. encirclement of China and to provide logistical and combat support if the U.S. chooses to go to war. Put another way, in wartime, Asian nations are assigned the role of cannon fodder. American and Korean officials say their military alliance should not be confined to the Korean peninsula, but must adopt a global role. In other words, the South Korean military must be willing to intervene anywhere in the region on behalf of the U.S., just as it did in the Vietnam War. NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg says that China is coming closer to us. He adds that the idea that security can be confined to Europe doesn't work anymore, and he believes that NATO must work with partners in the Asia-Pacific. Put it another way, because China is increasing its economic activity in Europe, NATO needs to expand militarily to the Asia-Pacific. A key development in advancing NATO's plan to go global was last year's exercise pitch black in Australia, and that involved the United States, uh, several Asian countries, and NATO countries as well. In that exercise, NATO aircraft took off from Europe and relying on air-to-air refueling demonstrated the ability to bomb targets in the Asia-Pacific in a single day. As one German general explained, we are sending a clear message. The Air Force can be deployed quickly and over global distances. Well, it's no secret who that mystery is directed at, who that uh, message is directed at. 
joint military exercises involving NATO and Asian Pacific partners are certain to continue. Uh, in fact, Japan's already announced that it will participate in Exercise Air Defender in June, which is slated to be the largest ever NATO air exercise to occur. And I, I think it should also be added that uh, in January, South Korean President Yoon Suk-yeol asked NATO to play an active role in discouraging North Korea's weapons program. So here's Yoon asking NATO to uh, confront North Korea. That's a very dangerous direction that he's asking for. So I would be interested in your thoughts on how the United States has been so successful in persuading a number of Asian Pacific nations to align their foreign policy with this Indo-Pacific strategy. In most cases, contrary to their national interests, uh, South Korea, for example, risks antagonizing China, which is its main trading partner. And uh, the second question I have is, do you feel that NATO seeing itself as having a role to play in the Asia Pacific increases the risk of war? Thank you. Well, on the second question, there's no doubt the existence of NATO increases the threat of war. Its expansion multiplies that effect. Expansion to the Indo-Pacific is an enormous step forward in the U.S. effort to dominate the entire world. NATO means the United States. The United States commands NATO. That means that the European countries are now enlisted in the U.S. preparation for confrontation in preparation for war with China, just as South Korea is enlisted by being occupied. The European countries are, in fact, partially occupied. Plenty of Europe of U.S. troops there, major U.S. bases. Ramstein base in Germany is used for U.S. operations in Africa, for example. You go visit the Ramstein base in Germany, you see planes taking off for U.S. operations in Africa. Uh, go to Diego Garcia in the Indian Ocean. You see planes, including nuclear-capable ones, since Obama uh, bombing Central Asia and uh, the Middle East. This is a global power. After the reason for those 800 military bases all over the world, and. Uh, of course, the United States wants to turn Okinawa, South Korea, into permanent military bases. As you say, exactly, the troops must be available to operate anywhere. Puts South Korea on the front line. The interesting case is the first question. How are others convinced to subordinate themselves to U.S. power. And in fact, we can ask that question about the United States itself. It does hold in the United States. So, for example, take the what's called the nuclear deterrent in the United States. There's a triad, nuclear submarines, aircraft, fixed missiles. Every strategic analyst in the United States knows and often tells Washington that the fixed missiles, the Titan missiles, are a threat to the United States. They serve no role whatsoever in deterrence. Their position is known to every adversary because they're fixed. 
if there's ever a, a threat in the world, they've got to be fired. That's what's called uh, use them or lose them. If you don't use them, they'll be wiped out. The moment of any time there's a moment of tension, they'll be attacked, and that means the state in which they're uh, stationed will be wiped out. They're a threat to the United States. Serve no interest. Take these nuclear submarines that are coming to South Korea. One Titan, one uh, Trident submarine, one, that's the old ones, can destroy practically 200 cities anywhere in the world. One of the old nuclear submarines now being replaced by more advanced. You don't need a land-based deterrent. So why is it there? Well, the Pentagon was clever enough to distribute these 400 missile sites in various rural counties around the country. The local congressman wants them to stay there. They bring in, uh, these are decaying, declining rural areas that basically, you got a cat, I got a dog. The, uh, the declining areas where this is the basis for these so the vote in Congress to keep them there. The threat to the United States, uh, right here. The same is true for U.S. corporations, which are being pressured by the government to break relations with China. Very lucrative. It's very interesting to see how they're getting around it. You read the Asia Times, you can, the business section, you can, they describe how if you look at trade patterns in Europe and Asia, uh, trade from China to the United States exports are declining, but it's being replaced by exports from China to Vietnam, Malaysia, and other Asian countries, which increase their exports to the United States. Put it together, what it means is U.S. corporations are doing Exactly the same thing, but not directly from China, indirectly through other countries. Uh, in many ways, the various parts of the world, even in the U.S., are trying to evade and block the Washington measures to turn the move us towards endless terminal, potentially terminal war. Well, we resist in various ways. Uh, South Korea, Jeju Island have your own ways, United States, Japan, other ways. But it's the same conflict. Is there going to be a single global power dominating the world militarily, forcing others to bend to its will by sanctions, economic strangulation, physical military attack, and other means? Or is there going to be a multipolar world with committed to the UN system of global order, which is not perfect, but the best one we have. Those are basically the choices now. Most of the world is moving toward the second. European leaders are falling in line with the United States, but even there, there are breaks. So Emmanuel Macron, has just 
spoken and visited, uh, spoken about and visited China and Russia, talking about means to move towards accommodation. He's, of course, bitterly attacked by the U.S. media, by U.S. political figures. They claim that Europe is denouncing him. On the other hand, if you look closely, they won't publish it in the U.S., but the president of the European Council, Charles Michel, top EU, has just come out and said most European leaders basically agree with Macron that Europe has to free itself from subordination to the United States, move on its own path. I don't want to say it openly. That's dangerous. Their own population support it. But somebody like Olaf Scholz in Germany is caught between different pressures, external U.S. pressure, internal pressure from his own population. Everywhere you look in the world, these issues are being played out. And uh, it is an international struggle that must be carried out with mutual support and solidarity wherever we are to join in moving towards saving ourselves from destruction, moving on to a much better world, which is attainable. You can reach it, but it's going to be a struggle, kind of struggle that the people in Jeju Island have been inspiring us to carry out. And indeed we will. And uh, um, I thank Greg for um, excellent um, comment and also question. And thanks, Noam, for that, um, again, uh, you know, continual reminder for the need to uh, work together and fight back. And uh, I think uh, at this point, I would like to ask to uh, maybe turn to Christine Hong, uh, because we have uh, discussed a lot of issues and also I know has provided such a thick, uh, rich details and also um, uh, uh, analysis. So maybe, uh, Christine, would you maybe help us a little bit kind of rep, uh, summarize and highlight some of the key points? Um, so rather than try to summarize uh, mm-hmm all of the points that were made. And I think that there was convergence, you know, among the points that a lot of people brought up. I'll amplify um, a few things. And, you know, I'd say too that, you know, if we're thinking about a peace movement, we're thinking about, of course, policy-based legislative work. We're thinking about grassroots mobilization, broad-based educational efforts, culture work. You know, you can think of a multi-sort of front um, movement. Um, but it was interesting. I, I'd like to just, um, I think that the work ahead is vast and I, I'd like to ask you a few questions in closing and uh, to underscore certain points. Today, uh, South Korean President Yoon stated that sustainable peace does not happen automatically. What he means by sustainable peace is unclear. He thinks that it can only be achieved through um, superior force. But what we do know from the people's perspective is that what we have is an unsustainable state of permanent war. As has been mentioned multiple times during um, tonight's program, this is the 70th year of the signing 
of the Korean War Armistice Agreement, and it was supposed to be concluded with a permanent peace. That has yet to happen. Ten years ago, on the 60th anniversary um, of the signing of the Armistice Agreement, I met with a, a South Korean peace activist named Kang Jong-gu, and um, he said, you know, 60 years represents a full lifetime. We have had a full lifetime of war. People may not understand that in the United States, but people in Korea understand that. And he said, isn't it high time that we, all the people, conclude peace through our own efforts? He said that 10 years ago. And he said something very interesting at that time, too. He spoke about South Korea's geostrategic utility to U.S. imperial designs. And he said, to reverse its loss of power, the United States has targeted global weak points. And he pointed out that the divided Korean peninsula, like the Middle East, was such a global um, weak point. And he pointed out how, as uh, you know, KJ was saying, North Korea serves as a stalking horse, a pretext, right? A ruse de guerre, right? And that the, the North Korea threat has justified successive war exercises between the United States, South Korea, Japan, India, and Australia, a kind of brutal solidarity there. And he said, from the perspective of U.S. foreign policy, the divided Korean peninsula offers a flexible occasion for the staging of power transitions within the arena of global politics. Korea is very useful. Why? This is what he said. It can serve as a facilitator, a weakener, an accelerator, a delayer, and so on. And so the United States w- will not easily um, give up its perch as an occupier of South Korea. And um, how do we start to take measures? And I, people already have, but how do we... How do we strengthen the work that has been done to transform Asia and the Pacific into a people's Asia and a people's Pacific? Um, you stated now, and I'm going to hold up this book. Um, <laughs> at the end of the 1970s, you actually, um, you stated something very interesting. So Greg, in his comments, stated that Asian nations right now have been assigned the role of cannon fodder. And um, you had some very um, interesting insight into this. You referred to these Asian nations that serve as cannon fodder as sub-fascist countries. And you said liberalism has accommodated well and contributed much to the institutionalization of sub-fascism under U.S. tutelage. The sub-fascist dynamic is alive and well. And, you know, um, what distinguishes, as people have stated today, um, today's militarized encirclement of China from the Cold War militarized encirclement of China 
is that China is the largest trading partner of countries like South Korea. And, you know, it was interesting in the supposed post-Cold War moment of the early 1990s that there was this kind of air of reconciliation that was in the air. Finally, these um, Asian nations that had been under the stranglehold of Cold War politics could finally move toward reconciliation and, you know, possibly decolonization. Um, and, you know, there was a Taiwanese uh, theorist, Kwan Sing Chen, who said, finally, at last, you know, Asia can leave America for Asia. But the problem, as we've seen, is that America won't leave Asia. And that's the problem. And so, um, you know, like, how do we think of decolonization in the region when even Japan is remilitarizing with the blessing of the United States and a militarized Japan is absolutely essential to a U.S.-led anti-China campaign. So I wanted to ask a question. Um, and, and, you know, it's, I'd like to ask a question of um, how do we shift the terrain of knowledge? There's very little steeped knowledge. I mean, like we're seeing a bunch of curricular fights across the country um, around African-American history, for example. There's virtually no knowledge about U.S. foreign policy, certainly not from a grassroots or people's perspective. Um, and so there's an educational and, tr and cultural struggle, not just in Japan, about Japanese imperialism. That exists. It's alive and well in the United States. And it so happens to be, as you well know, that universities are sites of profound structural violence. We can't imagine the reproduction of the military industrial complex outside of the centrality. And, and you know this from your institutional home of MIT, right? We can't understand it outside the role that universities play. And that's on many fronts and in many fields. It's in strategic languages. It's in area studies. It's in psychology. It's in anthropology. It's in many different fields. And, you know, it strikes me that um, I would love to hear your thoughts, having been at MIT for so long, about how do we start to also think, not only in a broad-based way, about um, you know, how do we start to think about shifting education, you know, um, and, and I think that there are ways, and I'll put something in the chat in just a little bit. I'm part of a group that is organizing to um, a, a syllabus to end the Korean War that is aimed not just at the university or K through 12, but many, it, it, it's, it's a popular educational tool. We have a syllabus that we are working on and um, unfurling module by module on the Korea Policy Institute website. But, you know, um, during the boycott, the height of the boycott, boycott, divestment and sanctions campaign, um, the BDS campaign, a huge part of that was activists mapping the complicity of Israeli universities with the military industrial complex. How do we begin, you know, like if we're thinking about an end to the Korean War, we're not just thinking about 
ending this for the sake of the Korean people. We understand the Korean War is structurally part of a larger um, system of violence that involves the military industrial complex, the national security state, um, you know, an empire of bases around the world. It's part of U.S. permanent war footing. It plays this enormous geostrategic role in a structure of militarized violence around the world. But if we were to think about also the fact that U.S. universities, including MIT, I'm at Santa Cruz, have played a role in perpetrating structures of violence, how do we begin to think also about the possibility of, as quixotic as it may be, a BDS against the U.S. university? Well, let's take MIT since you bring it up. It's where I spent most of my life, the world's leading uh, science and engineering university. Uh, during the 19, I got there in 1950, very conservative. Students not interested in anything except doing their work. 1960s, pretty much the same. It was one of the most conservative universities. Small, small group of students, handful. Of, I can give you their names. Uh, started, set up a small group. They called it the Rosa Luxemburg Collective. Half a dozen people started organizing among students, talking to them, working on thinking about the issues. What are they doing with their lives? How are they, what are they committing themselves to? There was some faculty engagement. A number of us were supportive and involved. Anyway, without going into the details, by the late 1960s, uh, MIT was the most radical university in the country. Its uh, present student body voted as president, somebody with a radical program you can barely believe. Michael Albert, some of you may know him. He's still very active in organizing, been doing all sorts of things over the years. Uh, that led to enough pressure within the university so that on March 4th, 1969, the administration canceled classes so that the entire university could devote itself to the question of the use of the uses made of technology, not just in war, but in repression and so on and so forth. Out of that came some quite important popular movements. Some of you may know of the Union of Concerned Scientists these movements and others spread around the country. They're now some of the main anti-nuclear movements, anti-war movements. Well, that happened right at the heart. Pentagon-funded university. Okay. That's the way things can happen. It has a permanent impact. I mean, I was teaching courses about these things in MIT in the 1960s got to be huge courses. A lot of a lot of students just came every year, um, opened them up to the public, put them in the evening so people could come in after work and uh, lasted the whole time I was there. I'm not doing this now, doing the same. So yes, those things can be done. Uh, 
we know how to do it. It's not a secret. It's a matter of putting in the energy and the effort and be quite successful. And uh, it has to bring up the, has to educate people in the kinds of points that you were correctly emphasizing. The U.S., you take a look at the international economy today. For a long time, uh, starting back in the 18th century, in fact, into the mid 20th century, late 20th century, the United States was the manufacturing center of the world. Not anymore. Since now, since the 1970s, the uh, manufacturing centers of the world have been moving to Asia. China, South Korea, Taiwan is the major chip factor in the world. Vietnam, Malaysia. The United States is becoming a financial center. It's not a major manufacturing center. Uh, take a look at the world's largest corporation, Apple. It doesn't make its money these days by making good products. It makes its money by investment in the stock market, by financial manipulations, uh, finance, finance, what are called services, mostly finances, probably half the U.S. economy by now. That doesn't provide a basis for power. Increasingly, the, the economic force of the United States lies in what economists call rents, like Apple gets profit from China using one of its patents, let's say. They're not producing anything. They're living on what the rules-based order is based on, heavy protectionism to protect uh, major, mostly U.S. corporations from competition. It's called intellectual property rights, means of undermining, protecting corporations that have had their production in the past. Now, it's not entirely true. If you look at the internet, the it's very common these days, normal among economists, to measure the wealth of a country by its gross domestic product. That's very misleading in an area of neoliberal globalization. Another measure, which is very important, is how much of the wealth of the world is owned by multinationals based in a particular country. There's one very good young political economist working on this, Kenji Starr, was in Hong Kong, now in England. Uh, what his work has shown is that if you look at that measure, how much of the wealth of the world is owned by US-based multinationals, half the wealth of the world is colossal. They don't. That's uh, their first in just about every area, retail, commerce, production, whatever it is, just don't happen to do it in Indiana, do it somewhere else to make profit. Uh, well, these are very significant facts about the world. And it means when the U.S. wants to control the world, can't do it by its manufacturing, its domestic manufacturing capacity, has to do it by force or by sanctions, even sanctions against U.S. corporations. That's why the U.S. is turning towards force in its confrontation with China. 
when the Secretary of Commerce, I quoted her before, is one of the more progressive figures, incidentally, Romando, says we have to prevent China from in, uh, moving towards inventiveness and development. It's pretty savage. It's not only savage, but it's crazy because China is leading the way by far in the kinds of economic development that might save us. There's two charts that I urge you to look at. They're never put side by side, but you can find both of them on the internet. One is the chart of military expenditures worldwide. The other is the chart of electrification worldwide. They're about the same chart. There's one country that's way in the lead. All the others are bunched together down at the bottom. In military expenditure, it's the United States. In electrification, it's China. Those two charts tell you a lot. They tell you why Chinese uh, international initiatives are loans, development, uh, no new Silk Road, so on and so forth, why U.S. development is military force. Uh, you use your strength. Strength of the United States increasingly is force, not development. U.S.-based multinationals have enormous wealth, but they don't contribute to the country. So you go to the former industrial areas in the United States, closed up shops, closed up banks, uh, people. In fact, mortality is increasing in these areas. That doesn't happen anywhere. But mortality is actually increasing in the United States among the white working class, mostly in rural areas which have lost their industrial base and people have just given up, die on you know, opioids and so on. Oh, well, that's, uh, but there's plenty of military force. Overwhelming, in fact, what the charts show. You can pretty well deduce from that the kind of policies that are going to be pursued. Well, going back to your question, these are the kinds of things that people have to come to understand. You outlined them very well. And you can do it. MIT, is, which you mentioned, is a perfect example. It was literally started by about half a dozen students and a couple faculty. Grew up to take over the university, have long-standing influences over So it can be done. Whatever. It's not impossible. We just have to do it in our own ways. And indeed, Noam, thank you so much, uh, Christine Hong, for um, the question. I think that's also for especially important question for uh, young people and also teachers as well, like us. Um, I, no, I didn't know that MIT was the most radical university in the 1960s. That's um, interesting. That's the and, end uh, of the 60s. It, yeah, 60s, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I think actually last time when uh, when I, no, when uh, when we met uh, in, uh, in your office, that was almost eight, seven or eight years ago, you know, actually I was actually look, uh, thinking that you were, um, you know, with this, you know, regarding uh, Christine Hong's question, what we should do, I think we're actually looking at, in a way, so you, in a way, you are, you are truly inspirational role model for all of us. And, uh, even then you were in, I think you're in 80s and, uh, 
I thought that you were still having, um, you know, was office hours and you were giving interviews, including, you know, meeting with me. And so my challenge at the time was, okay, I'm also going to be just like Noam Chomsky. I will be, you know, working hard until maybe 85, but now you're completely <laughs> now in your 90s and it's going to be the challenges that's hard, you know, hard to meet. Now, um, I am so sorry that we are, you know, we promised that we'll be running nine minute webinar, but it's way surpassed. And I'm, I'm, I apologize for uh, running, uh, extending our uh, meeting. And uh, um, I just wanted to, are there any comments or questions from the discussion or from chat? Um, okay, let me. Uh, Okay, let's, uh, Kevin, uh, Martin from P-Section. So, um, okay, Kevin. Hi, Kevin. How are you? Go ahead. I think you are on mute still. Okay. It said that I couldn't unmute. Okay, good. (laughs) Hi. I want to thank Noam and uh, Simone and all the great speakers. And I wanted to just bring some good news, I think, to an otherwise appropriately dour discussion because it is very difficult. And part of this is broadening the lens um, away or not away from, but uh, broadening the lens from the regional discussion, which I do think the U.S.-China competition, whatever uh, form it actually ends up taking will determine who lives and dies on this planet and how well the people that do live actually live. Um, but my organization, Peace Action, and some of the folks on this call have been involved in a relatively small movement, but that has been very successful that Noam obliquely mentioned, but not directly. And that is the movement to end the horrible war in Yemen, which has claimed 400,000 people, where a child dies every 75 seconds. Knock on wood, we hope the war is ending or is over. Can't say for sure yet. This has been a relatively small movement, smaller than the movement uh, of folks that work on Korea, which has grown so well the last five or so years. And it's really pretty remarkable in three aspects. First of all is, even though most people don't know about it, it has been the worst humanitarian crisis on Earth for a long time now, eight years. So in terms of ending human suffering, uh, it's a tremendous success. There's a lot that has to be done in terms of peace and reconciliation and reconstructing uh, the, the economy of Yemen. But hopefully, again, this horrible war over eight years that killed 400,000 people is over or about to be over. And that's a remarkable achievement. It should have happened sooner. I I couldn't tell you why 400,000 people had to die, especially with U.S. support for Saudi Arabia and UAE and the others leading the horrible war in Yemen. But it is an amazing achievement. It was a relatively small movement uh, that sort of had key demands and really didn't waver from those demands and used a pretty effective advocacy and organizing and legislative tool of uh, war powers resolution, which hadn't been passed since 1973. We did pass it during Trump. He vetoed it. We didn't have the uh, 
uh, ability to override it. We didn't have the votes to override it, but we kept the demands fairly simple. Um, the uh, thing that's really pretty amazing is that we basically accomplished this. We got Saudi Arabia, which is a horrible government in terms of human rights abuses and what they do in the world. We basically got Saudi Arabia to give up and just thought Saudi Arabia made the the responsible and logical decision that this war just wasn't worth it anymore. And we pretty much did it over the objection of the U.S. government. You may have seen that uh, William Burns, the head of the CIA, went to Riyadh uh, just a few weeks ago to complain to the government of Saudi Arabia about them making nice with Syria and with Iran. And that's the third piece of it that Noam mentioned, although he didn't mention Yemen directly. There has been this ridiculous uh, sort of uh, U.S.-Saudi-Israel uh, alliance in the region uh, aligned against Iran in this regional power struggle, which is absurd and, and doesn't help anybody in the region. And, um, you know, the U.S. basically has wanted to continue that. And, of course, Saudi Arabia is now our largest customer in terms of buying U.S. weapons. Uh, so we basically got Saudi Arabia, which is a, a terrible government, to say this is no longer worth it. And we did it over the objection of the Biden administration. And not just the Biden administration, we pretty much had a partisan block with the Democrats not wanting to challenge Biden on support for the war in Yemen, even though they did so during uh, when Trump was president, not all of them. And then Kevin, the can, uh, Kevin, can I, uh, may I uh, just uh, uh, remind a little bit, we are a little bit, pardon me, we are running a little bit late. So if we That's can fine. just uh, kind of, yeah, focus on maybe, yeah. you know, any comment my, on Korea. Or... My, my last, my last point was multipolar mm-hmm. uh, diplomacy that was led by China. It was not led by the United States. So I understand a lot of peace activists think we can never win on anything. Well, here's a really important thing where we just won recently, and I hope we take a little lessons from it. Awesome. Thank you so much. And Noam, any uh, response to Kevin's uh, comment? That's a very, it's a very striking example and an illuminating one. There are others like it. One of the most amazing achievements that I know of the peace movement was what happened in East Timor. Mm-hmm. That's probably the worst, closest to actual genocide since the World War. Indonesian invasion wiped out maybe a third of the population. Strong support from the United States and its allies for the Indonesian invasion. A very small group of people, kind of like this, in the United States, Australia, England managed to finally build up a powerful enough movement to compel Bill Clinton finally to declare the war was over, ordered the Indonesian troops out, they immediately left. That can be done. And this, it does mean popular organization with great power participation. In the case of Yemen, China was came in with the final step, the Iran-Saudi agreement is a long step towards hoping that this hideous atrocity will end. But it's the activism that Kevin was talking about that laid the basis for it for many years. Another, there are other cases. There are all these things show that things can happen 
over what look like hopeless odds, but they can be achieved by committed and dedicated action. In fact, no, I feel so much better now, better than the, when the webinar started. I feel very empowered. And uh, with that note, I think, uh, yes, I, uh, we are so sorry that we are not able to answer all your questions, but we will make sure to respond to the, um, your question in other way. And also, um, I, so I will, I wanted to kind of close to wrap up the uh, webinar and um, with the, uh, I want to read just, uh, what report that uh, Noam's um, uh, statement reported actually in the in the Korean media that was uh, um, um, under Noam Wihan uh, Progressive President's administration. This was uh, uh, Noam when you were we looking at the at the time the inter-Korean report. Shoman, you said. Progress on the Korean Peninsula marks a turning point in 500 years of a Western rule. And you said that uh, we are creating a new paradigm that leads to independence through unity and integration, overcoming the structure of a division and disintegration, which was the typical method of aggression, domination, and governance by Western and American colonialists for five centuries. Tremendous positive changes on the Korean Peninsula will lead to another concrete step forward toward a unified nation. We sincerely, you, you congratulated the President Romuyan's uh, uh, achievement at the time. We sincerely congratulate and rejoice that progress is being made in the cause of a reunification and through ceaseless efforts and resistance. I think that those were, uh, at this point, it is not an easy time, but I think that uh, it shows um, possibilities in this um, uh, challenging time. Um, so uh, with that, uh, Christine, do you uh, want to add? Okay. Christine, did you raise your hands? Okay, go ahead. You can unmute and... I just wanted to yield the floor to Jean Chung, who had a very quick announcement. Okay. Jean? I think she... Yeah. Sorry. Uh, hi, Jean. Yes, are you? Yeah, hi. From Seoul? Yeah, I'm... I'm ba- yeah, I'm from oh. Seoul, and okay. nice to see everybody. <laughs> uh, I have a quick announcement and something to ask uh, support from Professor Chomsky. July 27, everybody knows that it's the 70th anniversary of uh, the armistice of Korean War. And uh, women in South Korea believe that it is time for women to stand up. So. Uh, we have a plan to surround the Pyeongtaek U.S. military base. Um, Pyeongtaek is the, uh, the largest U.S. military base in South, in the world, in the world. So, uh, we have a plan to, uh, women and children go to Pyeongtaek and make a human chain. And it is too large to have a hand in hand connection. So uh, we're going to use the hot pink, like a cold pink color, uh, hot pink surrounding of the U.S. 
military base saying that enter peace treaty, all U.S. forces out. So it will be very, very dramatic event in July 27th. And let's make a moving forward that we, I, we hope that it will make a remarkable driving force. Enter peace treaty or U.S. forces out. Thank you. Thank you, Jane. Wonderful idea. Thank you. Um, any other question? I have David Hart. Um, okay. Uh, with that note, uh, Noam, any last uh, words that can inspire us? We can carry on our struggle together. The only important words are it can be done. We have to do it. We can do it. Let's get to work. Indeed. Thank you. Thank you, Noam, and thank you, Professor Chomsky, and our uh, distinguished discussants, and thank you, everyone, for attending today's webinar. Uh, my sincerest apologies for some of those technical uh, uh, difficulties in the beginning. Uh, we couldn't start uh on time. And in today's webinar, we covered many issues, and we especially wanted to focus on the um, implications, ramifications of uh, Washington's new Cold War on the Korean Peninsula. And uh, for many Koreans, Korean War is, is like um, open wound. Um, you know, I have a pet that I'm taking care of, which has a cancer and, you know, and have open wounds. And I learned that open wounds, uh, you know, you need a constant care. Uh, there's uh, always danger of infection. And so, uh, many Koreans, this is open and dead care that has been, you know, um, going on for more than seven years. And, uh, um, this time to stop the war and the Korean War, a sign of peace treaty. And uh, uh, stop this new Cold War. Um, after discussing all this information, um, we also learned that it's important to work together, uh, renew our struggle, and uh, um, fight back. And and it is possible. Uh, another world is possible. Um, if you have any other questions, uh, please you can also contact me. I will also, um, of course, I will be happy to um, answer your, you know. Um, uh, uh, and also trans, uh, uh, share the question to Professor Chomsky. And on behalf of JNC TV, uh, thank you, JNC TV, who's co-sponsored today's webinar. And our, um, discussants, our friends, amazing activists, and also, of course, you Noam, thank you so much. And thank you to those who, uh, who joined through, uh, yeah. uh, YouTube stream live and also Zoom. And thank you so much for joining us today and, uh, have a, Wonderful rest of the day and evening. Thank, Thank you. you. Good Wonderful night. Wonderful to be with you. Hi, Bonnie. I'm Minggu Kukkeyuan Kim Yongmin입니다. 미국의 신냉전 정책과 한반도와 동북아시아 전쟁 위기 예비날 개최를 진심으로 축하드립니다. 노엄 첨스키 교수님은 대표적인 진보 지식인으로 이전에 한반도 종전선언을 지지하셨으며 한반도 평화에도 관심을 많이 보이고 계신 것으로 알고 있습니다. 아, 이번 웨비나로 첨스키 교수님의 고견을 들을 수 있게 돼서 영광입니다. 한편 첨스키 교수님은 저랑도 간단한 개인적인 인연이 있었는데요. 
그 박근혜 오촌 살인사건 박근혜 대통령 오촌 살인사건에 아 제가 변호인으로 참여했을 때 초음식기 교수님께서 김어준 주진우 수분에게 아 탄원서를 써서 주셨던 적이 있습니다 아 그래서 그런 개인적인 인연도 있어서 오늘 더욱 뜻깊은 자리인 것 같습니다 자리를 마련해 주신 심원천 박사님께도 감사의 인사 전합니다 아울러 참석해 주신 모든 분들 너무 반갑습니다 불확실성의 시대입니다 미국과 중국의 힘겨루기는 기존의 판을 뒤흔들고 있습니다. 미국은 인플레이션 감축법을 무기처럼 휘두르고 있고 강력한 보호무역주의로 패권 경쟁을 심화시키고 있습니다. 일본 역시 무시할 수 없는 변수가 됐습니다. 최근 일본은 평화헌법 구조를 무력화하면서 군비 증강을 강행하고 있습니다. 군비 경쟁에 불을 붙임으로써 동북아의 위기를 고조시키고 있는 중입니다. 군비 경쟁에 순응한다라고 하면 과도한 국방비 지출 및 우발적 충돌 문제 등 다양한 문제에 직면할 수밖에 없습니다. 그래서 진정 평화를 위한다라면 머리를 맞대고 호혜적 관계를 형성할 수 있는 방법론을 이제는 논의해야 할 때입니다. 오늘의 웨비나가 의미 있는 시작이 될 것이라고 믿습니다. 자신만의 전략이 없으면 다른 이의 전략의 일부가 된다라고 합니다. 이번 웨비나를 통해서 복잡다단한 안보 경쟁의 문제를 해결하고 분석해서 불확실성의 시대를 헤쳐나갈 전략을 마련할 수 있기를 기대합니다. 이것은 앞으로 한반도가 나아가야 될 방향이 될 것이라고 생각합니다. 다시 한번 이 웹이나 참석해주신 모든 분들께 감사의 인사를 전합니다. 감사합니다.